Welcome to Educate for Life. I'm your host, Kevin Conover. My website's educateforlife.org. And we've got all kinds of shows up there that you can check out. Uh, we just had an interview with Alan Schliemann uh, last week on uh, ethics and uh, biology and science and how to determine biblically, uh, from a biblical worldview, what's appropriate in science and so forth. My guest today is Dr. Jay Smith. He's been a Christian evangelist, apologist, and polemicist since 1983. And he's been working with Muslims for over 33 years. He travels to countries all over the world showing Muslims why the Quran is not actually the word of God. He has two master's degrees in divinity and Islamics. He has a PhD in apologetics and polemics. And he's debated over 90 dialogues and debates with Muslim polemicists all over the world. And uh, uh, Dr. S Dr. Smith, thanks for being on the program today. If people want to check out more about you, where's the best place for them to go on the internet? Well, they need to go on YouTube, and they need to go to Fander Films, spelt with a P-F-A-N-D-E-R-F-I-L-M-S. So Fander Films with P-F, it's the German spelling, named after a German scholar named Dr. Carl Fander. Uh, that's, I put up videos, uh, about two to three videos a week, and I've been doing this since 2006, so an awful long time. So there are hundreds of videos up there. They're all on Islam. And I, um, they're also, not only are they doing apologetics, so defending against the attacks against Islam, but I also go on the offense, which is polemics. So I do both apologetics and polemics. Uh, there's material up there. Even today, I've just put up one yesterday. You'll see some more new stuff. All the stuff that I'm going to be introducing today in this broadcast is already up on Fander Films. That's fantastic. You know, I, um, the first time I got turned to you on, I'm, a, I'm an apologist uh, a teacher. I teach 12th grade students at a Christian high school, and we cover Islam and I was looking for stuff on Islam, and I ran across you um, outside of a, a mosque in London um, debating with people, and I thought, whoa, this guy is nuts. He's just, he is, he's, uh, nothing's holding him back. He's out there in front of everybody. I mean, you have kind of a unique ministry. It's not something that everybody goes out and, and does. What caused you to decide to go out and uh, get out in front of mosques in London and start um, basically arguing with Muslims about whether the Quran was true or not? Okay, that, that's what you're talking about, I think, is Speaker's Corner. Am I correct? Yeah, Speaker's Corner, yeah. Speaker's Corner is unique in the world. The reason I was at Speaker's Corner, I lived in London for 25 years. I went there in 1992 because of the growing radicalization of Islam in Britain, and they needed help. And I said, listen, I have a master's degree. I didn't have my doctorate at that time, of, both in apologetics and another master's degree in Islamics. I thought I knew all the answers to every question. Little did I know how little I knew. And when I went there in 1992, I, went, I made a beeline for Speaker's Corner. For those of you who don't know anything about it, if you ever go to London, make sure you're there on a Sunday. Go down to Speaker's Corner. It's right there at Hyde Park. And there are hundreds of Muslims, sometimes thousands of Muslims. Uh, they're do they dominate the corner right now. And I would go down there, and there would be about... 10 different Muslim speakers up on ladders, these little kitchen ladders, these A-frame ladders that you have in the kitchen, just so they can get their head above the crowd. And there would be sometimes 20, 30, 50 Talibes, disciples all around them. There were no Christians on ladders at that time in the afternoon, on Sunday afternoons. So I was one of the only Christians down there, and I would go and i make a beeline for these groups, and i try to elbow my way and try to get into the center, and then i just throw questions at the the imams or the chefs or these marabus or whatever they, whatever they call themselves. And they, the, uh, it was in about two, now 1994, I came across some brand new material, some of which I'm going to introduce today. So we're talking over 25 years ago, and I started introducing it in, in 1995. So that's 25 years ago at Speaker's Corner. And I just started asking some historical questions, so the same kind of questions we ask out of our Bible. You know, where is the earliest Quran? Show me where these manuscripts are. Why is it you don't have any original? Who is this man named Muhammad? 
When did he exist? How can we can't find anything written about him in the seventh century? Why is there no reference to people called Muslims? No reference to a religion called Islam? Why is there no reference to any city called Mecca? And there's no reference to a man named Muhammad until 690, yet supposedly he died in 632. And why is it everything we know about Islam comes from men like Ibn Hisham, Al-Wakiri, Al-Buhari, Sahih Muslim, Ibn Daw, Al-Tabari? Who are these people? These are the Islamic traditions that don't even appear till the 9th and 10th century, two to 300 years later. These are the kind of questions I was asking way back in 1995. And I got beat up. I got knocked to the ground. I had my glasses broken. Finally, the police came to me and they said, you've got to get on a ladder. We've got to see you at all times. For your own safety. Yeah. So I started getting on the ladder back in, nine, this is about, this is the spring of 1995. I never got off. Because once you're on the ladder, you have a lot more control. Mm. Now, Kevin, here's the problem. I, I don't know if you've gone to seminary or if you've gone to Bible school, but they don't treat you. They don't teach you in homiletics or uh, certainly how to, how to speak from a ladder with a hostile crowd in front of you. <laughs> no, when, you're taught homiletics, uh, yeah. when you're taught homiletics, we're taught to give a three-point sermon to people who actually love you and actually yeah. agree with you and usually nod their head and usually keep quiet while you're speaking. I, That's I, not I, the case at Speaker's I, Corner. I went to Completely Biola, I went to Biola and, and I, I have a master's degree in apologetics and you're right. There was no class like that. And I, you know what, I'm going to suggest to my professors that they start a class like that because uh, that's incredible. I mean, did you make headway there? I mean, was it just a, a constant shouting battle? Was there actually progress made? Or how, how do you, when you reflect on what, what you've done for 25 years, uh, would you have done it differently? Or you believe this is the way, this is what God has ca called me to do. And I, I did what I was supposed to do. Kevin, I, I don't know how to answer that. I say, as far as headway, yes, absolutely. If you go into the speaker's corner now today, my yeah. team is still there. Hatun Tosh, she is the one that leads it. She is a Turkish lady. She gets up and she just got beat up on Sunday, uh, knocked unconscious. I don't know if you've heard about that, but uh, no. she. That just happened last Sunday. Now, uh, she is putting up Muhammad cartoons, those Charlie Hebdo cartoons. She's been doing that for almost a month and a half. And she's also put up a Quran with holes drilled through it that she's drilled because of this discussion we're going to talk about now. Wow. Very provocative, but it's the only place on earth you can do it. That's why we use Speaker's Corner. It's the only place where you can say anything you want, and you can confront Muhammad, and you can confront the Quran, and you can confront their God. You can't do that anywhere else on any university campus, not in Britain at least, but you can at Speaker's Corner. So that's why it was my laboratory. It was the place where I field tested all my newest material and heard the best and the brightest coming from them. So I would say, yes, I would always, uh, if anybody, if those of you at Biola, I would set, set, spend a team there, send a team down on summer times, go to Speaker's Corner and challenge them to see if they can get on a ladder and last 45 minutes. Because wow. what we have found now, remember when I said I started in 1992, there were about maybe 10 or 12 different Muslim speakers there. Now, if you go to Speaker's Corner, there is not even one speaker. We've shut down all the speakers. We did pull them down physically. We just completely shut them down because of all this newest material, all this newest material where we're now confronting them at their foundations. This kind of material, historical criticism, redacted criticism, source criticism, literary criticism, textual criticism, these were all done in the Bible. We're now applying those very same criticisms on the Quran. And that's why today, 2020, is a benchmark year. Probably, for me, this is what I'm going to remember about this year. You're going to remember it for the pandemic. You're going to remember it for the elections coming up next week. I'm going to remember it because we have finally in my lifetime, we're finally destroying the Quran. And all we're doing is using textual criticism. That's amazing. And uh, so, so when you say we shut all those speakers down, what you're saying is they have no response to the arguments you're putting up against the Quran. Is that what, is that what you're saying? Yeah. These speakers who, who really had a ready crowd and no one ever confronted them, no one ever critiqued them, had never heard this kind of material. 
Now, I'm not going to take singularly credit for the fact that they all left. The fact is that they could not stand on the, on the ladder and take kind of questions that we were giving them because they had no answer. You see, Islam has never done what we've done to our Bible. They've never done that to the Quran. Islam mm. has never done to their prophet what we've done to Jesus Christ. We, they have not ever asked the most important questions, and that is, is there a man named Muhammad who lived in the 7th century, who lived in a place called Mecca, who received a book called the Quran? That's a simple question to ask. That's a historical question to ask. And every Muslim should have an answer to that. And the, the question I always ask them is, don't just give me what is the 9th and 10th century traditions are telling you. I want you to give me something from the 7th century that proves that that man existed in the 7th century, that proves that he lived in a place called Mecca, that proves that he received a book called the Quran. Just any Quran. I would love for you to give me to any Quran from the 7th century. That's all I'm asking. Isn't that a pretty simple question to ask? Isn't that a pretty important question to ask? Absolutely. And it's something that we've been dealing with with the Bible forever. We've been constantly been attacked on, okay, where are the earliest manuscripts? How many manuscripts do you have? Where are the manuscripts? You know, all this sort of stuff. And so um, that's amazing that you've taken that position. And so when you say, I mean, we, we titled this show, um, you know, the demise of the Quran, the fall of the Quran. And when you say that, what exactly do you mean if we, if, from a practical standpoint? What are you okay. saying that? And here we go. Yeah. Let me just go ahead and get you up to speed because there's an awful lot of your listeners who won't know what I'm talking about. And to understand what I'm going to say next, you need to go and see what the Muslims claim. Here is the Quran right here. This is it. This is the Quran that they use all over the world. This is called the Hafs Quran. You'll see why it's called the Hafs Quran. It's H-A-F-S. Very small. I keep it small because I want to make sure it's always smaller than my Bible. But this is the authoritative Quran. Now, according to every Muslim, whether they are radical, whether they are not, possibly not, not the liberals, but the nominals and the radicals. So you're talking about 99.9% .9 of all Muslims will say that this book is eternal. We don't okay. say that about the Bible. They will say that this book has always existed. It's uncreated. It's coexistent with Allah, has always been up there in heaven. They will say that it was sent down over a 22-year period between 610 and 632 to a man named Muhammad, uh, first in Mecca and then Medina. So two different cities, two different sections of the Quran, basically split it in half. The first section is Medina. The second heck section would be Mecca. So it, it kind of goes backwards. But nonetheless, they would say that that happened. And then it was then finalized, written down in its final form in 652 under the auspices or authority of the third caliph named Uthman. Yeah. So mid-7th century, basically just for 20 years after Muhammad died, it was written down in its final form. And that that book has never changed. Not one word, not one letter has changed since it was written down. Not one word, not one letter. Every Muslim knows that. Now, the Quran makes these claims. It's in the Quran. This is internal to the Quran. Eternality, that's in chapter 85, verse 22. As far as it not being changing, not one word, not letter being changed, that's in chapter 15, verse uh, 9. That's in chapter 10, verse 15. And that's in chapter 18, verse 27. So those are... Uh, 10 verse 15 and 18 27 say nobody can change the word of God. Therefore, it, it is not open to human changing. There are no deletions, no corrections, no accretions uh, 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 can happen. It cannot be corrupted. That's the claim it makes there. God will sustain it. Allah will sustain it. Allah will sustain it. Therefore, he protects. No, that comes in chapter 15 verse 9. Okay. That's in chapter 15 verse 9 where Allah, the reason why it can't be changed is because Allah will guard it. Allah will guard it. So that's why the Quran has made that claim. Muslims have no other choice but to then uh, appropriate that claim. And that's why every Muslim says that if it is, uh, uh, and basically what it's saying is this book is almost magical. It has always existed. If this is the case, there's no room for any man or woman to make one letter change, one word change. And that's why they all make this claim. They all make this claim. And that's been their undoing. 
because we would never make those claims about the Bible. Eternality? No, the Bible, we know who wrote the Bible. We know when they wrote the Bible. Many of the books of the Bible are, we put the names of the author's name on it, written by men, inspired yeah. by God, but written by men. As far as uh, saying that it was written down, we know that where the original, we know where the times, the dates, we don't have any of the original monographs. We don't have any of the original autographs. We, don't, we know that. We make that. We, we, are, we admit that from the get-go. Yeah. As far as changing, we know there have been changes. We know that when it's overwritten by men and copies of copies of copies of copies, anytime you start making copies of copies, you can get all kinds of changes that will, that will accrete in. And that's why we know that Mark chapter 16, verse 9 to 20, it's not in the original, I'm oh, sorry, in the earliest Greek manuscripts. It could be part of the originals, and that's a big debate that's ongoing. John chapter 7, verse 53 to John 8, verse 11, uh, we know there that that there, that story of the woman caught in adultery is not in the earliest Greek manuscripts. So we know that these are open to changes, but they were talking about only 40 verses, 40 verses in the entire New Testament that are even a suspect. And the reason we keep those verses in there is because there's no... They're, they don't say anything different. There's no new doctrine uh, that is already spoken. So we would never make those four claims about the Bible that they make about the Quran. Now, if that's the case, Kevin, then can you see, here's the problem. If Muslims are, start from the position that this book has eternal nality, it, is, it can never be touched by human, human hands anywhere in the last 1,400 years, then all we need to ask is, okay, let's just ask them a very simple question. And here's the first question that we've been asking and that I've been asking since uh, for the last 25 years. I, I, uh, my first debate that I had was in 1995 at Cambridge University with Dr. Jamal Badawi, uh, the world-leading scholar authority in the English language on the Quran. And so he and I debated for two hours at Trinity College in Cambridge University, and I gave 10 historical challenges. Amongst them was this challenge, where is your original manuscript? Where is the original manuscript? Did you claim that this is from Uthman? Where is the Uthmanic text? You claim it. I don't claim it. You claim it. And, of course, he couldn't answer because nobody can answer. Now the, we have an answer. That was 1995. There were some studies done on the 10, the, well, let's put the six major manuscripts uh, that Muslims claim are the earliest manuscripts. The Topkapa, which is in Istanbul, uh, the Samarkand, uh, the, or the Sanaman, uh, sorry, the Samarkand manuscript, which is in uh, Uzbekistan, Tashkent, Uzbekistan, the Ma'il manuscript, which is in the British Library in London, uh, the Petropolis manuscript, which is in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, the Husseini manuscript, which is there in Cairo in Egypt, and the most important one, the Sana'a manuscript, which is in Sana'a in Yemen. Those are the six major manuscripts. And this, these two scholars, both of Turkish, they're both Muslim, Altukulic and Ikmenesanalu, they both studied these six manuscripts for five years, came up with the results of their study in 2009, and it was printed in English in 2014, 2013. I have it right here somewhere. Here it is right here. This is just the introduction to that. I've got actually the entire manuscript right over there. If I, I should bring it up. It's called the Ul Al-Musaf Al-Sharif. This is the whole English translation of what their findings were. I was given this in 2014, and I was gobsmacked by what they were saying. What they were saying, and this is the only study that's been done on these manuscripts, is that not one of these manuscripts is from the 7th century. Not one. Wow. Muhammad died in 632. Well, what, they start to appear in 705. That's the Petropolitanus manuscript, probably the oldest one, and the Sana'a manuscript, probably 705. Now, there is an underlayer, there's a, it's a palimpsest, so there's another layer underneath it, which is actually probably from the last two decades of the 7th century, the time of Abd al-Malik, but it does not agree with the upper layer. They now, at that time, when I first heard this, I didn't know that no one had studied it yet. That has now just been studied, and the study has now come out in print in 2017. So we're just talking about three years ago. We now have found 
that the two, bat, the two layers of the manuscript don't even agree with each other. This is a lower layer. It has about 70 verses with, sorry, 63 verses with 70 different variants. I mean, words and phrases that are different than the upper layer, and that is even different from the Quran I have in my hand today. What's more, it's not much of the Quran, isn't it? If with only 63 verses, there's over 6,000 verses in the Quran. What's more than that, when you look at the other manuscripts, like the Petropolitanus or the Smail or the Samarkand, none of these are complete. The Topkapi is the best one amongst them. The Topkapi, the one that's in Istanbul, we have now just been told that that is dated to 740, about 740 to 750, mid-8th century. That's a whole hundred years after Muhammad. It has 2,270 manuscript variants. Ooh, doo, 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 doo. That means words and phrases that are different in that manuscript than the Quran we have in our hand today. In fact, we cannot find one manuscript that is complete in the 7th century or in the 8th century or the 9th century. We can't even find a complete manuscript even by the 10th century. So where is this notion that the Quran is complete and unchanged? Not one word, not one letter has been changed. But then, 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 this is what really got damaging. Uh, one of my colleagues, her name, well, I mentioned her name earlier, Hatun Tash. She was in Morocco. I don't want to give you the name of the country. She was in a country in Northern Africa. Uh, you already can get from what I just said. And she was teaching down there, and she wanted to go into a bookstore to get an Arabic Quran because she would want that for her students. So she walked into a bookstore, and she asked the man there at the counter, can you give me an Arabic Quran? And he says, Which, what Quran? Which one are you talking about? She said, hold on a minute. Now, see, Hatun Tash is Turkish, and she used to be a Muslim. Her father is a well-known imam in Turkey, so she has grown up her whole life living in an imam's family. So she knew good and well that there's only one Quran. Yeah. You don't ask that question. You certainly don't say which Quran. There has ever, only ever been one Quran, and that's the Uthmanic Quran that was created in 652 by Uthman. It was written down by Zaid ibn Tabit, the secretary of Muhammad, who received it from Muhammad before he died. So when he said which Quran, she almost did a double take. She says, what do you mean, which Quran? He says, well, we have Kalun, we have Warsh, we have Hafs, we have Ibn Kathir, we have Ibn Amir. And she said, what, what, wait, 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 just give me all of them. So he just, they only cost about a dollar to two dollars uh, there in that North African town. So she said, so she came back with about six of these back to London. And she showed me to them. She said, Jay, what are these? And I started laughing because I'd heard about this. These are called kiraats. These are called different readings, different readings. They're all Arabic, but they are read differently depending on where you put the dots and the vowels. Now, I had heard about this when I was in seminary, when I was under Dr. Dudley Woodbury. He remember hearing about it, but I didn't know there were any kiddots today, existing today. I thought these had all been dumped into the Nile in 1924 when they finally came up with this one. This is the Hafs Quran. This is the canonical Quran. This is the final Quran. 96 years ago, they chose this one as the final text, 96 years ago. Hmm. Can you see a problem right there? Yeah, it's huge. And I was oh, under the I impression. Just, I was under oh, the impression that. Um, quick question, real. Uh, you know, I, I've studied a little, not nearly as much as you, but I was under the impression that Uthman. I heard this from a um, a book I read a long time ago, in which he said that uh, all the variants were wiped out by Uthman, and then he consolidated into one. And this was the big problem: was that. Uh, these had been what these other variants had been wiped out, and that showed yeah, that yeah. there was a problem. That's Al Bukhari, volume yeah. six, had, uh, book number 61, hadith number 509 and 510. So that's exactly where you got it from. That's part of the tradition. That's what Al Bukhari wrote in 870. Look at the date 870. When did Muhammad died? 632. How many years between? 240 years later, Al Bukhari says that. Mm. Al Bukhari says that uh, there were these. 
Muslims who were up in Azerbaijan, they were fighting with other Muslims from Syria and Iraq, and these guys were from Medina. They're in the Hijaz in Central Arabia. And after the end of the fight, they went to the mosque and they started reciting the Quran. And suddenly these Medinans say, hold on, they, start, they heard a completely different Quran, not the Quran that they had memorized, not the Quran that they knew. And they started fighting with them, fisticuffs. And Hudaifa, the head of that, came back down to Medina. He was absolutely angry. He went to Uthman, the caliph at that time, and says, what are we going to do? We must not do what the Christians have done and have many different Qurans, like they have different Bibles. We must have just have one Quran. And so therefore, he demanded that Uthman rewrite the Quran in 652 in the Qurayshi dialect. That's the dialect of the people in Medina and in Mecca, in Central Arabia. And uh, Uthman did it. That's why Uthman did this. Then he went and got all those other Qurans. Well, hold on a minute. Didn't even know the Quran was written that early. Nonetheless, he got all those other Qurans in Syria and Iraq. Those were they were from Syria, Damascus, Kufa, which is today just southwest uh, of Baghdad, and Basra, which is there, uh, there, uh, there, both of them in Iraq. So two in Iraq, one in uh, Syria, and he took all those Qurans and he burned them. And that's in Al Buhari, volume six, book number 61, hadith number 510, 510. So that all happened in 652, right? But he didn't just stop there. He then took that Qureshi Quran that Zaidim Tabin had made for him, written in the Qureshi dialect, and he sent it out to five cities, one copy to five cities, one in Medina, one in Mecca, over to Basra, up to Kufa, and then way up to Damascus. So five cities, that's all they had were these Qureshi dialects, this Qureshi Quran. So it was just one Quran, right? All the others had been destroyed, so we're told, right? Yeah, yeah. Then what are these right here? I have no idea. <laughs> Each one of these is a different Quran. Here you have Wash. Here you have Kalun. Here you have Ibn Amir. Here you have Ibn Kathir. Here you have El Qasai. Here you have Khalaf. Here you have Shoba. I just bought these. You can buy these online in August, two months ago. Every just... one of these is in Arabic. Every one of these is from somebody in the 8th and 9th century. Every one of these is different. Not two of them are the same. Yet those are all Arabic Qurans. So is this, that's, yeah, that's crazy. So is this, um, is this new information or, I mean, you said that, hey, the fall of the Quran is in 2020. What's going on here? Um, okay, Kevin, this, hold on. Yeah. Is yeah. this new information? This is the earliest of these. This is what we know as Qira. These are different Qurans written in Arabic. There's the Arabic. They all have dots. They all have vowels. Every one of them is Arabic. None of these are translations. They all have 114 surahs. They all have 6,623 verses. But they all have different words and different letters. And why is that? Well, this one was written in 736. Muhammad died in 632, right? Supposedly, so this is over 100 years later. And this yeah. is the earliest. This is the first one to be written. This is the very first one to be written. Then you have here, Ibn Kathir, 738, two years later. Al-Qasai, 805, Khala, 844, Kalun, 835, Warsh, so now you're into the 9th century. These Qurans start to get written in 736 in the 8th century, and they continue to be written right through the 8th century up until the 9th century. Finally, by the 10th century, 936, a guy named Ibn Mujahid realizes there's a problem. There are just too many Qurans. So he chooses seven. He chooses seven. And this is what I was going to use. These are the seven right here that he chooses. Nafi, Ibn Kathir, Ibn Amir, Abir, Imar, Asab, Hamza, and Kisai. Those are the seven that he chooses, right? This you can get in Wikipedia. This is nothing new. Just go put a Qiraat in Wikipedia and you'll see the same list here. Now, that was in, that was in 936. And those are known as the seven holy Qurans. 
but they don't even get written down till 7.36, and they go continue all the way up until 8.05. So that's the, that's the ninth century. However, there were many more than that. Oh, there were tens, oh, hundreds more than that were being written. And the reason why is that when Arabic existed in the 7th century, when supposedly the Quran was first written, it only had 16 letters. And there are so many different ways to read it that no one knew what they were reading. And so they had to quickly start introducing dots, five dots, and three vowels. The Dhamma, the Kasra, and the Fata. Dhamma is the U sound, the Kasra is the E sound, the Fata is the A. U, A, U, E, A. Those are the three vowels that they had to introduce. Those were introduced in the 8th century. That's why you then have these guys starting to write the Quran. Because if you have five dots and three vowels, you can have such a variety of different words. If you just take three letters with just a, a bowl shape after three letters, which most of the letters in Arabic are bowl shaped, and you put one dot above that one, that's a na. Two dots above the next one is a ta. Three dots above the next one is a tha. One dot below is a ba. Two dots is a ya. Na, ta, tha, ba, ya. You can get five different letters depending on where you put the dots with every one of those letters. On top of that, you can put different vowels, dhamma, kasa, and fatha in every one of them. And as a result, you can have such a variety that just with three letters next to each other, you can have 33 different words. Wow. So you're now right. multiply that times sentences, <laughs> multiply that times sentences where you have maybe 10, 20, 30 words, and you can see variation after very, there were thousands of variations. So they had to, they had, oh, according to the latest statistics, and see, we're just learning this as we go, because we're getting this all from history, but it's over a thousand year old history. We, they had as many as 700 different Qurans by the time, finally, that a guy named, a guy named Al-Jaziri in 1429, sorry, sorry, yeah, 1429, decided to bring it down to just 30. And these are the 30 right here. You have 10 official readers, and each one of them has two transmitters or students who then are known as the riwayat. These are, that's the Arabic word, riwayat. These are the, the students that come from the readers. These are the 10 official readers, and every one of these are students. But not one of the students agrees with the readers. Not one of them. Not one of them agrees. In fact, we've just looked at 23 of these 30, and we've already found 93,000 differences. Ooh, doo -doo -doo. 93,000 different words, 93,000 different letters, 93,000 different ways of reading it that changed the theology, that changed the practice, that changed the doctrine over and over and over again. Now, can you see? Now, stop right there, Kevin. You have been told all your life that this book is eternal. You've been told all your life that there's only one Quran. You've been told all your life that that what we have in our hand today has never been changed for 1,400 years. Not one word, not one letter is changed, right? Yeah. You've been told that. And everybody has heard that. Now, we, when Hattud started discovering this, she started looking for many others. And she started going all over the place. And she came up with 26 of them. Here they all here. These are 26 that she came with. Just 26 in 2016. Four years ago, she found 26 of them. She went to Yemen, to Jordan, to uh, Morocco, uh, countries like that. We went down to Speaker's Corner and held them up. And you can go up on Fander Films. You can see what happened. This is just a picture from that holding them up. We just held them up. For everybody to see in June of 2016, so we're talking about four years ago, we held them all up and Muslims were absolutely incensed. In the crowd was a very tall man named Muhammad Hijab. This is his picture right here. He's this guy right here. This guy, I don't know if you can see him. The guy with the yeah, glasses, I can see that's Muhammad Hijab. He is very big on the internet right now. He has a YouTube following, I think of around 370,000, huge. So he's a big name on the internet. He was in the crowd. 
and he was there trying to confront us. And he saw us hold up these Qurans. He immediately left the crowd, and he started yelling all the Muslims to leave. Come away. Come away. Don't, don't go there. Come here. Come to me. Come to me, he was saying. They all came to him. And he says, don't look at what they're showing you, and don't listen to what they were saying. Now, that's the first time he had seen another Quran. He had been told all his life there's only one Quran. That happened four years ago. Let's now jump to June 8th, 2020. Now we come to this year. June 8th, 2020. You could see he went through a crisis of faith back there in yeah. 2016. I would go through a crisis of faith. You would go through a crisis of faith. Sure. This man here, this is my man, is Dr. Yasef Qadi. He is one of the considered to one of the most authoritative clerics in Islam, in the, uh, probably in Islam today. He is from Houston, Texas. He is an American. He comes from Pakistani background. He has an American accent. He got his PhD at Yale University on the Quran 25 years ago. He heard the same thing that Muhammad Hijab heard there at Speaker's Corner. He heard it at Yale University. He went through a crisis of faith. So Muhammad Hijab now comes to him on June 8th on YouTube. They both have their own channels. Yasser Qadi has 370,000 uh, uh, subscribers on his channel. And so here you have two different Muslims from two different areas of Islam. One is Muhammad Hijab over here. He is from what I would call the populist part of Islam, the radical form of Islam. This is about 99% of all Muslims around the world. This is the orthodox Islam. This is the, the, the ortho, uh, Islam that exists primarily outside of the United States and outside the West. And he represents that Islam. Yasser Qadi is over on this side. He is from the West. He is an academic. He got his PhD at Yale University. So he is highly respected. He lives in academia. He lives in America. And he should have the answers. Because why? Because he got his PhD in this area. So you have two different Muslims representing two different spheres of Islam. Popular, academic, right? Eastern, yeah. Western. And he's asked, he, he asks them in this interview. Now, this interview is about an hour and 45 minutes. But about an hour and 16 minutes into the interview, Muhammad Hijab asks him this. He says, what about these kira'ats? Kira'ats means readings. What are we going to do about these readings? Immediately, Yasar Qadi recoils. He says, do not ask me this question. We do not talk about this in public. Do not film me with this question. Please do not film me. This is not a question we should ask. Muhammad Hijab says, hold on a minute. This should be an easy answer. Which kira'at, which one of the 30? I only have 10 here. Which one yeah. of the 30 exists in heaven? Which one of these Qurans was revealed to Muhammad? Which one was actually written by Uthman in 652? Which is the Quran that is eternal? Which is the Quran that is the same all last 1400 years? Which is it? Yasser Qadi says, this is something we don't talk about in public. Don't ask me this now. Take my class. Take my class. And we will do a deep dive. And then you can ask me this question. Mm -hmm. Just a, uh, Muhammad Hijab was not satisfied with that. He said, this should be an easy, easy question. And then he held out his hands and says, I'm going to give you a black sheet here. What are you going to write on it? Will it be Wash? Will it be Kalun? Will it be Hafs? Which one? Which one of these 30? This is the official 30. Which one are you going to write? Yasser Qadi would not answer. He says, I will not answer that. He says, and then Muhammad says, is this what caused you a crisis of faith back at Yale University 25 years ago in 1995? Just got, no, 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 he said. No, no, no. This did not cause me a crisis of faith. It was a crisis of knowledge. Ooh, do you love the distinction there? <laughs> not faith, but knowledge. 
He says, I am absolutely sure that the Quran is the word of God. I am absolutely sure that it is guarded. I am absolutely sure that it is preserved. I am absolutely sure that the Tawatir is absolutely authoritative, that I do not have one doubt that the Quran that we have in our hand today is the Quran that is in heaven. And he just went into this mantra. This is the mantra. This is the call. I call this the Islamic dance. He went yeah. into this dance where he just started dancing the same thing that he has been told since he was Yehi to a grasshopper. And they don't want, and they, they do this dance anytime you ask this question. And then he said, we have a respect for the Quran, we Muslims. And we have a line, a red line beyond which we don't go. We only go so far. We don't ask any questions after that. Mm. But when I was at Yale University, there is no red line. You can ask any question you want. That's what it's like here in the West, he said. Here in the West, they have become, they have come leaps and bounds. They know a lot more than they did a hundred years ago. And now we can no longer get away with that. And then he turned to Muhammad Hijab and he says, Islam has holes in its narrative. Ooh, tu, 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 tu. There are holes yeah. in the narrative that you're talking about. These holes. And the Western world is looking at us like the emperor with no clothes. I couldn't have writ written it better if I had written that, that script. Yasser Qadi was finally admitting to Muhammad Hijab on camera that the Quran has holes in it. That the holes are... And these holes, Kevin, go all the way back to the 8th century. This is over a thousand years they've had these Qurans. For over a thousand years, they've not known which how to deal with this. Because which one of these Quran is the official Quran? Which one? There's no Can way you to see tell. what's happened? Yeah. So, so what happened was, what happened was and, this, and this is how he ended it. Finally, after 25 minutes of insisting, he finally asked a second time, I'm going to hold a blank sheet of paper. Which one of these, Gidans, which one of these are you going to write in here? Which one? Yasser Qadi finally said, at the very end of the interview, they are all the Quran. <laughs> oh man they are all the Quran all 93,000 differences are the Quran just look at these two right here these are the two most popular ones in the world today these are the two most popular this is the Hafs that I have in my right hand this is the Wash that I have in my left hand the Hafs is now the official Quran that has been dictated that has been chosen in 1924 in Cairo in Egypt was then chosen for all of Egypt in 1936 and was chosen for the whole world by King Fahd in Saudi Arabia in 1985, we're talking only 35 years ago, this became the official Quran. That's only 35 years old. This Quran is still being used all over North Africa. They won't use this one. They only use this one. It's called the Warsh Quran because it comes from Cairo in Egypt. Look at these two Qurans, and there are 5,000 differences just between these two Qurans. 5,000 differences. Different now, are, words, they, are they different significant races. differences? Because some, you know, in, in Christianity, we have different manuscripts and all, and we, we say, hey, you know, these aren't significant differences in, in the Kevin, in the Kevin, Kevin, yeah, Kevin, yeah. stop talking like a Christian. Remember, can you even <laughs> ask that question as a Muslim? No, you can't. Bingo. It's supposed to be, yeah, it's supposed to be eternal. It's supposed to be word for word. Absolutely. You're not even supposed to ask that question. What do you yeah. mean, are they significant? The fact that they have even different words and different, and different letters destroys everything the Quran says about itself and everything Muslims have been saying for 1,400 years. But to answer your question, absolutely. But who has looked at those differences? Show me one Muslim that's done a comparative. Because how were these kid'ats chosen? Now, how do you choose a Bible today? How do you choose a manuscript that plopped in your lap and suddenly you see an old manuscript? 
that is probably coming from the second or third or fourth. Let's say, let's say you received the Sinaiticus. What's the first thing you do with the Sinaiticus when it comes to your house or comes to your museum or comes to your school? You open it up, right? Yeah, sure. And then what do you do next? What's, well, you begin to get somebody who's going to be able to interpret it and read it. And, okay, hold on, hold on. And, so somebody has to know the language. And yeah. then what does that person who knows the language, what do they do next? Well, they're going to begin textual to translate criticism. it. No, no, yeah, no. textual no, no. criticism. You do a textual analysis of the text. Before you do oh. any translation, you've got to see whether or not that really is the Bible. And how do you do that? You compare that text with an earlier text or the, uh, what we now know as the re Textus Receptus. You go with that which is authorized by the church as the final text. Because we don't have any original, so you go to the earliest one. That's why when the sure. Latin Vulgate, when they went in an 1800, when Tischendorf and people like him discovered the Sinaiticus, and they discovered the Alexandrinus, and they discovered the Vaticanus, these three Petropolitan manuscripts, they're all written in Greek. The first thing they did is to compare them with the Latin Vulgate, and they found that there were differences. These 40 verses were in difference. And that's why they realized that these were much earlier. These were from the 4th and 5th century uh, A.D., Therefore, they became then big, they became the Texas Receptus, or you might say they became the, the, the codices that were then used as for, to compare all the other ones that came later. And that's exactly what you're supposed to do with these, right? These all come later. Am I correct? Yeah. Well, so if you have a reader and you have a student, shouldn't the first thing you do is open up what the student's saying and compare it with what the reader is saying? Okay. Okay. Or shouldn't you go to an earlier manuscript? Shouldn't you go to the earliest manuscript, like the Topkapi or the Samarkand or the Ma'il or the Husseini? Because they're all a century earlier. Sorry, they're yeah. all 40 to 50 years earlier. Shouldn't you go to the earliest manuscript and do a comparison with them? Okay, yeah. So, not and so they. One page was opened. Not one letter was read. Not one word was read. Not one sentence was read. So, how did they choose these different, different get outs? This is just 10 of 30. You know I don't what know. Did? You, you, what, did, what did they do? This is brand new for you, Kevin. This is what no one's ever heard. In fact, I didn't even know this prior to June. This part that I'm telling you has all come out from a scholar named Dr. Shadi Nasser out of Harvard University, who is finally writing this up. And he's going back to all the, he's going back to the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th century, and he's actually exposing. He's a Muslim himself. He's exposing exactly what happened. Every one of these was chosen not by textual uh, credibility, not by textual authority. They didn't even open a page to look at it. They didn't even know that there were differences. They were chosen because of how many students they had. They were chosen by popularity. Wow. Or in some cases, like this guy here, watch, he was chosen because he came from, from uh, Cairo in Egypt. Because they needed somebody from Cairo in Egypt, so they chose his text. So, well, Jay, I have a equal. I mean, what, what, is, what is this doing to, um, I mean, you just said that there's a Muslim scholar that's studying this, that's exposing this. He's a Muslim himself. But isn't this undermining his own faith? I, I mean, what, what's happening to these, these Muslims if, okay. you know, they're coming this to This is what happened, Kevin. And, that was on yeah. June 8th, right, that that happened. Within a week, they put them up, they put that interview up on both their channel both of their channels. I immediately heard about it the ver that very same day. So did David Wood, who has a, he has a subscription of over 500,000. He has the largest yeah. in the Christian world. And so did Al-Fadi, so did Hatun Tash, the four of us who are working on, on the Quran. We all heard about it. We, Islamic, Islam Critique, Colin from Islamic Critique was the first. He told, he, he said, hey guys, have you seen this interview? You've got to look at this interview. Grab it. So I grabbed it and I, I immediately put up a half hour uh, 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 unpacking of everything they're saying. I, and that's still up there. You can go see. 
tens of thousands, I don't know how many, 50,000 people have watched that already since June 8th. Now, what that happened was Muslims started hearing about it because we were starting to tell everybody the world. World, have you seen this? They're finally admitting that there is not one Quran. They're finally admitting that all 30 Qurans are the Quran. They're finally admitting that all 93,000 differences are all in the Quran. They're finally admitting that these Qurans only begin to appear in the 8th century. Not one of them is from the 7th century. Not one of them agrees with each other. Not one of them agrees with the Quran we have today, that they're all different. And this was all done in that interview by within a week. They had to this stop all comments. Yeah. This is June 8th. This is within a week of June 8th. With, so just a week after June 8th, both Muhammad Hijab and Yasser Qadi had to shut down all the comments because they were getting thousands of comments from Muslims who were absolutely livid with them, saying, you are going to be dependent on my salvation. You are, if the blood is on your shoulders for me leaving Islam. I'm leaving Islam because of this, because we oh, have wow. never heard a man of your stature saying that there is not one Quran, that there are many Qurans, and not, not one of them is the same. That you're not to ask this question. That you must ask me, ask me in private. Don't ask me this question. And that for a thousand years, this has been a problem, and you have still not solved it. And you, he, that, that happened to him. That crisis happened to him back in 1995. We're out in 2020. And he still could not answer it until he finally says, they're all the Quran. Every one of them, all 30 of them, the Quran. So by the time, by one month, within two months, I'm sorry, within two months, so we're talking about uh, July, August. By the beginning of August, both Muhammad Hijab and Yasser Qadi had to delete that interview from their YouTube sites. Now you don't. So is that still accessible, or is that is that is that still accessible, or is that not? Is it gone? You we got. got it. It. <laughs> what do you think? Great. Why do you think we grabbed this immediately? We've got That's all great. that. I've got all the the entire twenty five minutes. I've got, and we're going to just keep reminding Muslims. We're going to keep reminding Muslims that you've got a hole in your narrative. We, that's now, that's now the, the signature piece. Holes in narrative is that, is that discussion that happened between these two gentlemen right here. They finally admitted on that. Now, let's now jump into what's happened in London, what's now happening all over the world. Because Hatun Tosh, who is the one that really introduced this problem back in 2016, we, she and I were the ones that introduced it all around the world, which caused an enormous amount of backlash against her. Uh, she has now been beaten up a few times in London, outside of London, and then just on Sunday, she finally got knocked unconscious. Uh, and they're gonna, the police have already told her that they can no longer protect her. It's getting too dangerous for her. Well, she's, she's doing two things simultaneously. She's not only holding up the Qurans, she's also holding up the Ch Charlie Hebdo cartoons simultaneously. She's been doing yeah. this for about six weeks. And uh, you can I, see, we need, yeah, we need to scary. pray for her. Yeah. That's amazing that she hasn't, uh, that, that she's still alive, honestly. It uh, seems incredible to me. Why, why is it that at that corner, um, you're able to have that dialogue, but nowhere else in the world you're able to have that? What, what? Why do they allow, uh, why do Muslims allow that, those conversations to take place? Oh, Muslims would love to shut that down. That's why they're beating her up. That's why we've been beaten up. I, I've gotten beaten up many times down at the corner in the 1990s, especially. But the speaker's corner is a bastion of freedom of speech. It's been around for 150 years. It is the only place on earth where you can ask these kinds of questions. We can't do it on university campuses. I can't do it on the streets. I can't even, I can do it on YouTube. We're doing it right now. This is, this is some ways is like speaker's corner on the internet. But Speaker's yeah. Corner is where you're physically there. And she's physically there every Sunday. She gets up on a ladder. Now, during COVID, they don't allow her to get on ladders because they get too big a crowd. So, therefore, she has to stay on the ground, which makes her a lot more vulnerable. Mm. That's why she's getting beat so, up. So, what does this mean for Islam in the long run? I mean, when you say, hey, 2020 marks the year of the fall of the Quran, um, what does that mean, practically speaking, as far as 
you know, uh, the mosque here in Southern California down here in San Diego and these people that are the Muslims going here, is this going to trickle down into the, into the knowledge of the, the average, uh, you know, lay person in the, in the, in the mosque, the average Muslim? Uh, or is this just something that as the Christian church, we need to be able to get out there and, and be able to communicate this about? I'm going to ask you both, ask, both, answer both of those simultaneously. Back in the 1800s, there in Germany, in Tübingen, men like Wellhausen and others in Germany asked the same question of the Bible. Now, that was in the 1800s where they started. They brought together the documentary hypothesis. They talked about textual criticism of the Bible. They're saying that we cannot trust the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We don't know who Abraham was. We don't even know if Moses existed. These are nothing more than folklore. Certainly, the first uh, the 12 days of creation, we know that that is nothing more than hyperbole or metaphor. It's, it's nothing more. And you can, you're still hearing echoes of that today. And they said, we don't have any of the original manuscripts. Therefore, we cannot trust any of them because... It could be this, that these are just borrowed much, much later, tens of tens, hundreds of years later and redacted back to men like Moses or men like Abraham that are in Genesis. Now, that filtered down into the seminaries and that filtered down into the churches, down into the pews, so that by 1905, historical criticism, along with Darwinianism, decimated the church in mm -hmm. Europe. And the church has never recovered from those two criticisms, historical criticism and Darwinianism. Now, we started to get our, put our act together, and we started looking around and started saying, hold on a minute, we need to answer these questions. These are good questions. The Bible is the only, the only book that has been asked these questions. And so we started going back, and we found the Mari tablets, the Nuzi tablets, we found the Amarna tablets, we found the Ebla tablets. These are tablets that are from 2300 B.C., 1900 B.C., 1600 B.C., from before the time of Moses, and they tell about Sodom and Gomorrah. We now find out the names of Sodom and Gomorrah. We now find all the customs that surround Abraham's life. They're exactly the same customs that existed up until 1600 B.C. They would not have existed when Moses was writing in 1400 B.C., and yet we've got the right man at the right place doing the right thing at the right time, proving that the Bible is more accurate than any other piece of ancient history. So we started doing our, uh, we, we were able to then uh, answer the, the documentary hypothesis. We found 50 different archaeological uh, artifacts that now support 50 different into people that we have the right man at the right place. And in every case, so much so that now by, by the 21st century, we pretty well know that there's not one artifact, there's not one stella, there's not one obelisk, there's not one, uh, uh, one piece of evidence that we can come across that controverts a properly understood biblical statement. That's how accurate our Bible is when it comes to historical credibility. But that was all done to the Bible, and that's why we have done our homework. Those same criticisms, remember, redacted criticism really wouldn't exist today without the Bible. It was not created with the Bible, but it was the Bible where redacted criticism was forced, really was mature. The same thing yeah. with source criticism. The same thing with textual criticism. Textual criticism, you have to give thanks to the Bible, because more textual criticism, more uh, academic textual criticism has been applied to the Bible than any other. So now what we're doing, we're now taking those same criticism, source criticism, redacted criticism. We're now looking and we're asking a question. I just did a three-hour marathon with Hatun last night where I went through question after question where we're looking and trying to find Muhammad in the seventh century. We can't find any reference to Muhammad at all in the century he lived from his yeah. area. Yeah. We can't find any reference to Mecca until 741. That's the mid-eighth century. That city is not on any map. We can't find it in any artifact. It's not on any inscription. We can't find any Quranic Arabic, the Arabic that we see in the Quran, with the Tad Mabuta, the Aleph Maksura, the, 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 what we know is the definite article. This does not exist in any Arabic that is, that is anywhere in the Hijaz or from the central part of Arabia at all, where the Quran was supposedly created. The Arabic that we find in the Quran is all Nabataean Aramaic, 
which is 600 miles further north. We're looking at all the rock inscriptions. We can't find any rock inscriptions prior to 690. That means 60 years after Muhammad's death, we can't find one rock inscription with the name of Muhammad on it, with the name of Islam on it, with the name of Muslim on it, with the name of Mecca on it, or anything to do with the Quran. No Quranic material on it until 690. And then 690, they start to proliferate. We've looked at all the coins. This just came out this year. Looking at all the coins, we now have coins from 630, 640, 650, up until Mu'awiyah in 660. We have people. These are all Arabic coins. These are all the rulers who are there in what is today Syria and Jordan and also Arabia. And these coins are, not, are supposedly by Muslims. There's not one reference to Muhammad, not one reference to Abu Bakr or Umar or Uthman or, or Ali. These are the four, four caliphs. These are what you do with coins. As soon as you become a ruler, you put your name on it. You put your face on it. And then you put your religious distinction. Every one of these coins have crosses on them. They are Christian coins. These coins are not at all Islamic. All the way up to Mu'awiyah, who finally puts his name and his and his uh, uh, also his image on it, he puts that in 661 and 663 up until 680. Every one of his coins, if they're in the West, they are all Christian. If they're in the East, they're all Zoroastrian. Nothing Islamic about it at all. Whoa. So can you see, this is all stuff that's come out this year in 2020. So now, what is everything that? I've what? just told you, Everything I've told you, Kevin, have you noticed? I'm using artifacts from the 7th century up until the 8th century. I'm not using anything from the 9th and 10th century. Everything the Muslims are going to tell you about who Muhammad was, where he lived, what he did, how he, how he received the Quran, all of that comes from the 9th and 10th century. That means it's two to 300 years too late. Therefore, everything they're going to tell you about Islam is based on silence. These are arguments from silence. Whereas everything wow. I'm telling you is based on hard artifacts. These are coins. These are rock inscriptions. These are buildings. These are letters supposedly written by Muhammad. We know who they are. This is the things like the Doctrine of Iyakobi, the Ashtanami letter. We now have these in our possession. We're looking at them, and not one of them is from Muhammad. They are all from the 16th century. Some of them are from the 12th century. They're hundreds of years later and hundreds of miles away. So we're wow, just destroying amazing. Islam. And everything that I've just said in the last five minutes where I'm putting it all together, and I'm just showing you about half of the stuff we've had. We yeah. have looked at all the mosques. We're looking at all the mosques from the 7th century up until the 8th century. Every mosque from as far away as China, from India, from Sherman, we're looking at in all the mosques in Syria, looking at Jordan. All the mosques have Qiblas. They have Qiblas that are facing supposedly Mecca. Not one of them is facing Mecca. They're all facing Petra. Up until 706, Muhammad died in 632. Up until 706, every mosque is facing Petra. That's in Jordan. That's 600 miles away. That's where the Quran was came from. That's where the Arabic comes from that's in the Quran. And when we look at it, everything we now know about Islam today was introduced by the Abbasids who come to power in 749. They are the ones that introduced Muhammad. They are the ones that introduced Mecca. They are the ones that introduced the sanctuary. They are the ones that introduced all the five uh, stages of the, of, of the Hajj all of which pre-existed in Petra. Every one of those five stages you can find in Petra. Now, why is it that we're only learning about it now? The reason why is for the first time, we're forgetting about the 9th and 10th century, and we're now focusing on the 7th and 8th century. And isn't that what we're supposed to do as historians? Wow, that's incredible. I, I just am blown away by that. I mean, basically, this is... You've not this heard is, any of this, have you? This no, is all I new to you. Yeah, I and mean... It's all coming together in 2020, and we're getting hundreds of Muslims that are leaving Islam because of this. Wow, praise God. Well, I, that's absolutely incredible. I, I'm, I'm just completely kind of blown away right now. I, I have to redo my entire curriculum on Islam now. <laughs> so uh, for those of you listening, uh, this is Dr. J. Smith, and you can check him out on YouTube, Fander Films, that's P-F-A-N-D-E-R Films. And uh, I, can't, I can't encourage you enough to just spread this out to everybody you know.
Um, I mean, it's just, uh, honestly, like you said, this is kind of uh, the fall of the Quran. That's incredible. Uh, who knows what God is going to do through this? It's just amazing. So um, we're about out of time, uh, Dr. Smith. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on the program. And I really uh, have a tremendous respect for you and your passion for, and what you're doing uh, with David Wood, too. I've had him on the program, too. And uh, boy, God has put together quite a team. So thank you so much for all you're doing. Kevin, let me just say one thing. Have you noticed that everything I've done in this last hour is not from a Christian perspective? This is not a Christian polemic. This yeah. is not hate preaching. I'm not an Islamophobe. There's nothing hateful about what I've said. I'm asking it from a totally neutral perspective. I'm saying, is it true? That's all I'm asking. I'm not looking as a Christian confronting the traditions. I'm not confronting Muhammad. I'm saying, hold on a minute. I'm asking the same question that have been asked of us. Therefore, this is as neutral as you can get. Anybody, in fact, everybody should be asking this question. You don't have to be a Christian to ask what I've asked in this last hour. You don't have to be a Christian, or a, you can be an atheist, you can be a humanist, you can be a Hindu, and you can be a Muslim. And so the Muslims who are listening, I'm saying, this is now being asked of you. you did, you've had it easy up till now. We're going to show you that you've got to now find answers to these questions. No longer can you just say, don't ask us. No, we don't so keep on telling you you have a line beyond which we can't go. Folks, there is no red line here in the West. There is no red line here in the United States. There's no red line. We have, can ask any question we want. We're not being hateful. We're not being Islamophobic. We absolutely love you because we know that we have a better book, a bigger book. Now, I have this book right here, and that's why I say forget about the Quran. This, this little book here. Come on back to the bigger, the better book. Forget about Allah of this book. We now can show you who Yahweh is. Forget about Issa. He's not the right Jesus. We can bring you back to Yeshua. Come on home. That's all we're saying. Come on home. Come on home to Jesus Christ. Hey, man. I, I, for those of you listening, I hope you enjoyed the program. It'll also be up on YouTube and all of our social media. And uh, I'm just very excited to put this out there. So uh, thanks again, Dr. Smith. And um, I'll be following you and just uh, seeing how this develops because that's going to be incredible to see what happens in 2021. Uh, maybe it's the next fall. Uh, we'll see. So thank you so much. God bless you. For everybody here, uh, thanks for being here. And I uh, hope you have a great week, great weekend. And um, share this with your friends. I got somebody on here. Krista is in Germany right now wanting to share it and uh, wants a breakdown from you, Dr. Smith. She wants an a abbreviated version she can share with her Muslim friends. So, it's uh, right up there on Fander Films. Everything's right there. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. Have a good night. God bless you. Thank you so much.